The image of the father, guys. Okay, so as some of you know, uh, I actually have my nursing degree and worked as a nurse until about a year ago in nursing school. I loved biology uh, specifically, really was interested like in the genetics. It blew me away that from like this cool looking double strand of whatever DNA, um, a kid could have the same eyes as her mom or a son could have the same laugh as his dad. It just blew me away. I love maybe like in a church foyer or at a park scene, like a son that looks like the father, right? The way that um, they talk. Um, I used to wanna look like my dad, which is a little bit funny, but I was the tomboy before my brother came along. And so I wanted to look like my dad. I wanted to play basketball like him. I haven't even fully outgrown it. You know, I actually still, there's a lot of his influence in, in all of our Bible studies because I want to be like my dad. Um, I think it's fun when you can see certain traits in a son that come from the father. So in our house, um, I, I see it all the time. We have three sons. So and they all bear a resemblance to Matt, my husband. So our oldest, Micah, he can memorize sports trivia like nobody's business, just like Matt. Just pull random people off of a roster. It's just somewhere in his mind. Matthias, our middle one, actually looks like Matt. If you've seen him, you agree with me. He's got these baby blues and the shape of his eyes look just like Matt. Well, then Maxwell is a bit more of a mystery to us. But where I see... <laughs> Where I see Maxwell bearing Matt's resemblance is as soon as a sporting event comes on, Max goes into herky moves. He goes into like mascotting. And many of you know that my husband was herky in college. And it's, it's genetic. It's in Max. He can move, whether he has a mascot or not, he moves around like a mascot. And it's pretty impressive. So guys, my boys look like Matt but there are differences. My boys reflect Matt to an extent. And I wonder, someday they might represent him, you could say. Maybe they will go into his business. Maybe they will be a counselor alongside him and represent him. But right now, they just kind of look like him. But that's not what we read about Christ this week. We read that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the exact representation, right? We went to Hebrews. He is the exact imprint of his nature. We went over to John and also saw that no one had seen God except the one who sat at the right hand of God. He made him known. So guys, why would Paul begin with this? Why would he put this in here? Do you remember what we said last week? That the Christ him... It's like ammunition against whatever problem was creeping into the church. Whatever confusion was kind of stirring in the church of Colossae, whatever this false teaching, Paul's gonna fire back at that with the Christ hymn. Okay, so what is our problem as we study tonight? What is the problem being presented from 15a? I think it's pretty simple. I think the problem is we can't see God. Okay, I don't think we need to overthink it as we start. Let's consider this. We cannot see God. However, we have plenty to see. I mean, especially in our generation, everything is highly visible, right? With the internet, think of surveillance or YouTube. Everything is highly visible. We always have something to look at. 
We're always looking to something. We look to some image. We're always putting our hope in certain images, maybe purpose, maybe comfort. I'm talking small things, also big things that can consume our life. We're always looking to something. And guys, let's, again, let's, let's simplify this. I don't even mean just in big abstract things. I want you to actually think about this literally. What is the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning? How many of us, is it our phone? I mean, the moment our eyes are awake, we look at our phone sometimes to see how many people have liked us since we've fallen asleep, right? What do we put in front of our eyes? We look maybe the first thing in the morning to the news, right? We're looking to the state of our country or to our leadership. We look to this image. We build our life around that image. And so often that's what we put our hope in. We have icons that motivate us and icons that, that drive us in life. I think this is true for all of us. We all have an idea of what we want to look like. And we definitely all have an idea of what we want our life to look like. We live in a very visible world. And I think that Paul is actually addressing this contrast in this verse. See, we look at things and we look to things all day, but God is invisible. So Paul begins this section by very simply laying out the solution to the problem. The solution to God's invisibility, as you saw in your homework, is that the son is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the father. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. I want you asking on repeat, what am I learning about Jesus? And this week you could have started with, he is the revealer of God. So what exactly does Paul mean when he uses the word image? We're gonna look at that. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about Christ? What does this verse even teach us about sin? Okay, so do you guys remember last week, we said Paul is gonna take us all over the Bible to teach us about Christ. Here is our very first example. He's pulling a word that has its roots at the very beginning of the Bible, isn't he? When he uses the word image. So listen, as I read from Genesis 1, you guys will probably be familiar with this text. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Guys, what are we learning about God from this word? Well, it's like God is saying right away at the beginning in his godness, what he is saying is, hey, I have a plan to reveal myself. And actually, it is a plan that is built into who I am, a plan that is built into who I am as a trinity, as a three-in-one God. So what I mean by that is he's, he's not just God the Father, which is an invisible heavenly spirit, but he's saying, I am also God, the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that word before. It's a wonderful, fun word to say. It's the ruach of God. It means it's like the exhalation from his breath. It's that, that energy of God that we see throughout the whole Bible. So he's not just God the Father. He's not just God the Spirit, which is personal and lives inside of us. He's also God the Son. The, the Son, the Word of God, the visible of the invisible. There's another name 
for Jesus, the visible of the invisible. So right away, guys, from the beginning, God says, I have a plan to make myself known. And it's wrapped up in the Trinity. But secondly, from Genesis, we see that it is also, it involves God putting his image on his people, making them in his likeness. It involves him making these people as little image bearers so that the world can see him, so that the world can understand him and know him. That's what we learn about God, even from just half of a verse. But what do we learn about sin? Well, you guys probably are familiar with this too. The fall changed things, right? It changed the way that the world would see God. So when sin, when rebellion entered the world, our ability to bear the image of God, it was fractured, like a mirror that has been broken and shattered. So now, simply put, guys, it's hard for me to see God. I look around, and sometimes I can't see God. Where I should see, if, if there was no fall, what I should see is these royal servants moving around the world, showing a strong resemblance to God. That's not what I see all the time. Instead, I see whatever's on the news. I see the headlines. I see what's in my feed. That means that I see brokenness. I see murder. I see hatred. I see judgment. I see anger, brokenness. Guys, it is hard sometimes to see God. Maybe I can see him like if I were to go to the Grand Canyon or if I were to stand on the shore of the ocean, but then we're just talking once a year on summer vacation. And I know that I should say that I can see God in his word, but sometimes that's easier said than done. And so maybe now we're starting to develop some, some language or some more words for what our problem is. We have more of an understanding of it. See guys, I actually think that it's in our makeup to want to see God and we understand that he has made himself known. And maybe we even are starting to sense that it's somehow wrapped up in our identity. It's in all of us to look for God throughout our day. We scan our horizon and we look for him throughout our day. We, we want to take those exhilarating moments like maybe in a worship service and don't we want to pull that out into our week we want to take those grand canyon moments and pull it into our Iowa winters it's in us right we want to see God I think that the contrast Paul is drawing out here I think it leads us to, to maybe if we were being honest we would say this to one another well if if I could have just lived when Jesus was on the earth, then I would not have any problems having faith. If I could have just seen Jesus calm the storm like we looked at in our homework, if I could have just seen him heal the blind, then I would never doubt, I would never look elsewhere to put my hope. Or maybe you would say, you know what, just take me back to those Old Testament times. Take me back to the times when you could see the work of God, the miracles of God regularly, we would say, go take me back to the time of the, the Exodus, all those miracles when they left Egypt. There, back in Exodus, that's a God that revealed himself. If I would have lived then, that would have held my gaze. I would never have looked anywhere else. Then I would have really believed that God was working in my life. 
I would be faithful, I wouldn't waver in unbelief, I wouldn't doubt. Well guys, let's actually look at that. You guys briefly looked at Exodus 32 this week in your homework. And I wanna reference that, but I actually wanna back up and, and just quickly run through what was actually going on prior to this scene at the base of Mount Sinai where they make this golden calf. What happens before that? Some of these stories might be familiar to you guys, but think about um, the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, so this comes right after God has delivered his people uh, from Egypt, 10 plagues where he showed these miracles and they could see the power of God. So then they come to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his men are breathing down their neck and the Red Sea's behind them and God splits the sea. He makes a way in the desert. He makes a straight path for them. What an amazing revelation of God's power. Well, what happens after such an amazing story? They cross that Red Sea. Guys, I'm turning only one page over when I start to read this story where the people of God, the, the recently rescued people are at a place called Mara and they're thirsty. They're thirsty because the water at Mara is bitter and so they can't drink it. And it says that they start grumbling against Moses. Do you know what God does to them? God, what he, the way he deals with his people at this time, these people who probably like still had Red Sea mud in their sandals, he deals with mercy toward them. He takes that bitter water and he makes it sweet. He satisfies their thirst. And so then we think, oh my goodness, these people have now seen God do not one thing, not two things, but three huge miracles he has provided. He has made himself known to them. What happens next? Well, they keep journeying. And ironically, they end up in a place called the wilderness of sin. And now they're hungry. They're hungry. Their stomachs are empty. And so what do they start doing? They're grumbling. Their stomachs are grumbling. Their words are grumbling. Guys, they, are, they have seen God's faithfulness, but here they are and they panic. And you know what? Their grumbling gets so bad that they say, we should have stayed in Egypt. Why did we ever leave? There was always food in Egypt. They start longing for the days of slavery. How does God respond to them? He provides manna from heaven. This is unbelievable how God has revealed himself to them over and over again, how strong their faith must have been since they were able to see God. Next chapter, they have now moved on and they are at a place that I cannot pronounce, maybe Rephidim, Rephidim, I don't know, we'll go with Rephidim. There they are, uh-oh, they're thirsty again. There's no water. Guys, it's like they, they can't get it in their mind that the God of the seas, the God of the Red Seas, could possibly also be the God of a cup of water. But they panic and they grumble and it actually says that they quarrel and that they test the Lord. And what does God do? He provides water from a rock. A couple pages later, where do we find the people of God? This is where you guys started in your homework. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. So the Israelites, they set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from God, to find out the plan from God for his people. 
Okay, this is kind of the starting blocks for the people of God. Moses is up there, they're camping at the bottom, guys. What is happening here? Can you imagine us at that scene if we are these Israelite people, we're at the base and, and we're waiting and we're expecting, we're like, we know that Moses is gonna come down and he's gonna, he's gonna give us the law. He's essentially gonna give us the plan of how we're supposed to live and, and when can we get onto the promised land. But Moses delays, not just hours, not just days, not just weeks, but Moses is still up on the mountain. And I, I could just imagine them there at the base, camping, cranking their necks back and, and straining their eyes, longing to see God. When is he going to reveal himself? When is Moses, the, really the icon or the image of God, when is he gonna come down? I could imagine that if I was there, I would start struggling with control. I would start struggling with impatience. And that's what happened. Right, you guys saw that this week. What did they do when there was a delay, when they could not see God at the base of that mountain? They tithe off their jewelry, they give it to Aaron, and he fashions them a golden calf. Looked a lot like one of the gods of Egypt. And they say, hey Israel, here you go. Here is our God. And they worship him and they throw a huge party for him. This is one of the saddest stories in the Bible, in my opinion. This is our God. Here you go, children of God. Here he is. Here's a God you can see. Here's a God you can control. This God, he's way safer. And good news, he works on our timetable. Here is a God that we have made. And they just throw some kind of churchy, Hebrew-sounding language around it. They feel more comfortable around it because honestly, it looks like what they had seen for their entire life in Egypt. One of the saddest stories in the Bible, but I think tonight it has really rich application for us, guys. While there is something in us innately that looks for God, when he delays or when he doesn't behave as we think he should, we are greatly at risk for what? idolatry. And that's what we're going to talk about now. We are greatly at risk for idolatry when we don't see God or when we don't acknowledge him. So guys, we probably all know that one of the 10 commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. We know that worshiping idols is not permitted as a Christian, but I'm here to tell you that that does nothing for me. If I am being faced with a choice to bow to an idol of some sort and you say, oh, Rebecca, remember that 10 commandments, I'll say, I don't care. I mean, honestly, a, a law in that moment is not gonna keep me from looking at that idol. It does nothing. No rule carries enough weight in my heart when my gaze has fallen to something beautiful, something maybe exciting or alluring, or how about just something promising? something that looks like it might lead me to happiness. I need something more than just a rule. I need something compelling, something to hold my gaze, something to lock into. Guys, if I can't see God, and honestly, maybe the reason I can't see God is because I don't really care to look for him in a certain season, then a rule about idolatry is not gonna motivate me. 
Are you with me? Would anyone nod with me and admit the same? If God seems to be delaying and answering your prayers, if you've been waiting for as long as you think is appropriate for something, and something else presents itself, something that maybe you could control, something that you could see, something that you could touch, something that you could feel, then is a little sticky note with a rule from the Bible actually going to turn your gaze away from that lesser thing? Not, not me. I need something more than that. I need something way more compelling to pull my gaze off of that idol. What I need is the truth that we find in Colossians 1.15. I need this truth about Christ as the image of the invisible God to empower me against idolatry. We're gonna look at three reasons why. The first one is because what this verse is telling me is that God has provided. Okay, what I mean by that is here we see that the son is the manifestation of God. He's not less than God. He's not nicer than God. He's not softer than God. Uh, he is not weaker than God. He is the exact manifestation of him. So if you're the Colossians or if you're you, then why would you ever look elsewhere? I mean, what else could you need for salvation, for justification, for courage or comfort or hope? Why would you look anywhere else if we're seeing that this is how God has provided it also teaches us that God is saying that he has a total monopoly on revealing himself. Think about that for a second. He has a total monopoly on revealing himself. He is saying, hey, I'm the master planner on how I will be revealed. So you and I, ladies, have no place doing the work of making images of God. Not golden calves or anything else. It is God's work to make images of himself, to reveal himself. And his plan, as we already looked at, is that you and I would bear his image. He's already filled the world with little images of himself. It's mankind. And so it is not our job, but it is God's job to do that. But when we realize, when we acknowledge that we are little image bearers, what that actually does is it points us to a bigger provision of God. We aren't the ultimate provision. We're not the visible of the invisible, but ultimately it's Christ, right? It is Christ that has make him, made him known. God in skin, God incarnate. Not kinda like God, not somewhat like God. Fully like God. Christ is fully God. But guys, this truth is not just factual. It's also really practical. And the second thing I want us to see is that he is wanting, Paul is wanting his readers to see that while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. Let's unpack this. So it is Christ who reveals to us what it means to be human. Christ shows us how to bear the image of God because he does it perfectly, right? So it's him that we look to when we're saying, okay, I know my job here is to point the world to God. How do I do that? Okay, I'll look to Christ because he did it perfectly. The visible of God, Christ, shows us how to be the kind of human we are intended to be. Guys, here's what's going on here. Paul is saying, watch me. He's saying, hey, look, 
Look to Christ. Look to him. Look to his actions, his values. And then let that inform your actions and values. He's saying, ladies, look to Christ. Let his identity inform your identity. Looking to Christ will both keep us from the vain and and hollow idols that we're so prone to, but it will also strengthen our identity, okay? Looking to Christ will strengthen our identity. This is where the theology of Colossians 1 becomes so practical, guys. So in a book that I'm reading about identity, I I read this. It said that idolatry corrupts identity, okay? Idolatry. So looking to something other than God, that will destroy our sense of self. Think about this. I actually think this is super, super ironic Because if I think about when I am struggling with idolatry, when I am giving my time, my affections, my my heart to something else, guys, it's often because I'm trying to silence my insecurities, right? So idolatry corrupts identity. But when I'm dealing with idolatry, it's actually because I'm trying to puff up my identity. I'm trying to fix something that feels wrong about me. And I, I think that's ironic. So let's just take this. What, when I look to vanity, okay? I know it's a stereotypical woman thing to confess, but I still haven't beat it. So let's talk about it. When I look to vanity, that desire to be beautiful, why, why do I do that? It's because I'm not in that moment. I'm not really sure of my value. I'm not really sure of my purpose, my aim in life. I'm not really sure if I'm loved. And so here's what I do. Oh, I know, I know what'll fix this. Under eye cream. <laughs> this, is, this is new in my 30s. Under, those of you giving me blank stares are in your 20s. Okay, I'm, this is for real though. Under eye cream. Here I say, okay, yep. Here is something that I can see. This area looks different than it looked five years ago, okay? And so here is a solution to my identity issues. And so I, tar- I start to idolize vanity. I, I think, honestly, I-, I think about the eye cream. I talk about it. I'm not gonna make eye contact with the person I, I talk to about it in here because I won't be able to... <laughs> I'm gonna look at my notes. I start... To- I think about it, I talk about it, I fixate on it, and I spend money on it. I pursue it, I pursue beauty, guys. But what happens? If you give a girl under eye cream, she's gonna want dry shampoo. (laughs) And if you give a girl dry shampoo, she's gonna want some Birkenstocks. (laughs) And it goes on and on and on. Idolatry corrupts identity. What do you guys think about that? I mean, we saw from the beginning, from Genesis, that we, our purpose is not to make images, but to be images. So ladies, do you feel like you are lacking purpose in your life? When was the last time that you lacked motivation or some sense of aim or passion in your life? 
Could I ask you to consider, could it be that there is some idolatry in your life? Maybe there is somewhere where you are creating your own image or version of God. And could that be corroding the identity that God has put in you from the beginning? So we have seen from this verse that it is God providing because Christ is fully God. But we also see that Jesus is showing us how to be fully human. And the third direction I see from this verse is that it invites our gaze upward. God is providing like a visual for us. He is providing a place for us to set our gaze. Paul's saying, here, here guys, look at this. Here is something that we have seen, that we have looked at, that our hands have touched, as it says in 1 John. Jesus' life, it shows us how to do life. It shows us how to be fully human. Guys, what we're talking about in this last point is way more than just trying to find happiness. It's way more than even being our best self. Because here's what happens, guys. When we set him before our eyes, we will be shown what our identity is. We said it last week. Our identity is found not from culture, not from what we make it up to be. It is found against the backdrop of who Christ is. That is when we learn who we are, guys. So could I invite you tonight to lift your gaze? Ladies, do not aim so low as wealth or health or even happiness. Lift your eyes. Do not aim so low. Lift them. Why, ladies, why should we resist this urge to look anywhere but Christ? Because everywhere else, everything else, it pales. It pales in comparison to the beauty of Christ. It's boring, guys. To chase your dreams is even boring compared to looking at Christ. To just be comfortable or to just be safe, it's too little. There is more. Lift your eyes. Set your gaze on Christ and then walk with him. And what you will find as you are in Christ, as he partners with you, as he has a grip on you, he grows you in his likeness. And we took time to look at that this week. He will grow us in his likeness, like a kid that looks more like their parents as they mature. We will start to look more and more like Christ and the world will then see God. See, we are invited to turn our gaze to him because it's about growing in Christ's likeness. So do you guys see that all this one little verse, this little half a verse, has taught us. We have learned about Christ, we've learned about ourselves, and we are invited to just turn from lesser things. See, again, it's not really about making that, that lure, that luster of the lesser thing diminish. It's not really about turning down the attraction of all the other things or me or your leaders coming to you and saying, just stop. Well, just stop chasing that idol. Just stop loving that other thing. It's not, it's not about that. It's not about us white knuckling or plowing our way through by our own strength, saying, okay, darn it, I'll be done. 
loving that other thing. It's not about those other things losing their luster in our minds. It is about looking for something that is so much more exciting. See, when we look around this room, for example, when we look around this and we see and we hear what is going on in the hearts and the minds of this group of women, when I look and I see that you are overcoming your long-term addiction, when I look and see that you are standing atop your temper or your doubts, guess what I'm seeing? Jesus. I am seeing the visible of the invisible in you. That little idol of success or of a toned body or of a family, that does not hold anything to when I see Jesus in you. And this is what we read in 2 Corinthians this week. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. When we lift our eyes and we look at Jesus, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Guys, we don't need to live in the time of the Exodus to see God working. We don't even have to have lived at the time of Christ. Because when I look out at you, I see chaotic waters that have been calmed because of Christ. And I see ways that he has made new roads for you in your desert. I see straight paths now in front of your feet. Guys, it excites me. It compels me. But what about when you see God provide refreshment for me in a dry season of my life? Or when I see what was once bitter in your life turn sweet just like it did at, at what's it called? Mara? 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 Yeah, there we go. That holds my gaze. Those kind of images, those snapshots, that's exciting. That gets my attention. Guys, there's nothing better. There is nothing more exciting than seeing Christ growing us in his likeness. Ladies, why would we look anywhere else? Let's lift our eyes. Let's fix our gaze. Let's behold his glory and help one another do it. And as we walk with him day by day, we might not even notice how we are changing. We might not even notice that we're standing taller, that, that we're wasting less time bowing to this idol or bowing to that idol or getting tripped up by that sin or tripped up by that sin. We will become women who stand tall. Why? Because our gaze is lifted. We are not no, we're no longer looking at lesser things. We are looking at Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Let's pray. Father God, you have provided. You have provided for our needs. So much more than helping us pay the bills or have friends or have good relationship, meeting goals. Lord, you've provided for a big need and that you have allowed us to see you through Jesus.
So God, would you allow us to no longer look to lesser things, no longer bow before lesser things. God, I pray that you would take this time to show us if we do not yet know what it is that we're looking to instead of to you. Lord, are we like at the base of Mount Sinai, growing impatient because you have delayed according to our definition? You haven't heard us maybe, maybe you're not even real anymore. God, would you come to those women who are experiencing that? By your kindness, would you lead them away from those idols, help them to repent and find so much comfort, so much joy in a God who always takes us back and always forgives us? And God, would you then teach us to look to you? And would there be a sense of just excitement that we have found what is better? In your name we pray, amen.